Hi, I'm Paul Warren. And I'm Ryan Klein. And this is another episode of SEO is Dead and Other Lies. Ryan, how are you doing on this wonderful day? I'm doing fantastic. Paul, how about you? Uh, I'm doing great. Uh, this is our first episode of the new year, actually. So I'm pretty pumped about it. Oh, shoot, it is. Well, yeah. I thought they recorded sometime. No, I guess not. Oh, is that, That's when I'm um, yet. <laughs> But I'm really excited because we have uh, a great guest today um, that's going to be talking a little bit about uh, online reputation management uh, and the platform that he's building out. And today we have Jason Barnard, CaliCube. Uh, it's a SaaS platform that helps you with all of your online uh, reputation management. Um, we're going to be going over that, how we sort of automated this process and the things that you need to look at uh, when you're doing this yourself. Uh, Jason, how are you doing today? I'm doing absolutely fine. Absolutely lovely to be here. Uh, you guys are pumped and I'm pumped too. Uh, very, very. So tell us a little bit about uh, your platform. Yeah, I mean, CaliCube uh, is, is basically a platform. It, it's a platform that's indirectly online reputation management because CaliCube aims to uh, provide you with a prioritized task list to take control of your brand SERP. Your brand SERP is what appears when somebody searches your name, which is often where online reputation management comes to the fore and where it hits brands and people in the face when they get something bad. And the idea is to take control of it so that should anything bad come up, you're already in a position, A, it probably won't rank because you've already controlled it. But if it does rank, you've got the tools and the means to actually get rid of it very quickly. So proactive online reputation management is what I would be calling it. Um, and it goes further, in fact, than that because it also helps you with your knowledge panel. And a knowledge panel... For people who don't know what it is, it's a thing on the right on desktop that shows uh, what, Go what Google thinks or understands you to be. And it's, from Google's point of view, factual understanding of who you are and what you do. Um, and if you can get one of those, it means Google has understood who you are and what you do, and it makes it much, much easier for you to then communicate, communicate to Google what is going to be good for your brand server. And what's good for your brand server from Google's perspective is what is going to be valuable and relevant to your audience. Yeah. So, so I think what's really, really awesome about this topic, uh, because it's like the opposite of what I think Ryan and I usually have to deal with when it comes to um, dealing with brands is where they come to you with some issue that's already like really bad, right? Like there's already some terrible negative review or some website uh, that's like trashing their brand and like, how do we fix this? So yeah, you're a really smart guy. You're doing it the opposite way that we usually deal with it. And like, you're, you're just being proactive and putting this stuff out there. Um, yeah. So a, a little mean, bit about that. Do you focus on maybe like, uh, like different web 2.0 websites and stuff like that to build out kind of brand profiles on it? Or like how, how exactly does, does the software work? Right. Well, what CaliCube actually does, I mean, it, it's, it, it, I've been doing this for seven years and I, you know, I, I started off with my own brand. So what appears when you, when you Google my name, Jason Barnard, and if you, if you Google it, Google it now, not you personally, anybody who's listening <laughs> and you will see there is only me on that page and it's all digital marketing on the left-hand side. All very impressive. It's my Twitter boxes. It's search engine journal. It's uh, SEMrush. It's WordLift. It's all of these kind of um, terribly well-known or impressive or respected digital marketing resources. And on the right-hand side, you've got the knowledge panel, and it contains a photo, probably a description, my homepage, and the songs that I've written that I was in a cartoon. So it's got that in there. It's got my music group in there from the 90s, and it's got associated entities who are other digital marketers. So basically, you've got my life story in one page. And importantly, 
the, what dominates by far is what I'm currently doing today. And that's really, really important. Google wants to show the actual current information about you. And uh, the, the fact that all of these profiles and elements are things that I either control or semi-control, people like WordLift, I know them very well. So I can ask them to change things or search engine journal, I control the page directly because it's my author's page. So the idea here is to say, I need to control that page. Um, and that basically comes down to one, what CaliCube does is it goes through this SERP, it goes through lots of related SERPs. It's my secret source that I'm not gonna tell anybody. And it, it figures out which sources are important to Google so that you can focus on the ones that really matter in terms of how Google builds its understanding of you and what it should be showing on your brand SERP. Um, and, you know, I, I was looking at it the other day for myself and I was very surprised because I've been working on my own for seven years. Yeah. So I know all the profiles that are out there. And I would have guessed 90% of the priorities, but I still got 10% wrong. Huh. Because uh, I have human bias and the machine just went, nope, you're wrong, my machine. I built the machine yeah. and I looked and I went, that 10% is wrong. And then I looked into it and I thought, actually, that 10% is right. And the machine's beaten me. And it's my own stupid machine that I built on a Sunday afternoon. Um, so I got a, a quick question about these, right? So uh, so I manage a brand. I have to manage this my, myself, right? So I know exactly where you're coming from. Uh, it's no, really right. important. If you, let's say you want to become your own brand, uh, how would you go about getting... Um, getting into this um what like you mean what you've by done with like your, your profile here with the knowledge panel like if i wanted to make my own like what steps would you suggest someone that's like trying to become their own brand your own knowledge you mean yeah right uh your knowledge panels i mean the thing is that the theory is incredibly simple um and the theory is something i've been working on for for, for years and it's taken me a long time it's it's one of those things that um years of, of complexity and trying to figure things out and trying all these different things, you end up with the secret source, which is actually really simple. And it's not a secret source because it's so simple that I couldn't keep it secret for very long. It's basically you say, I or my brand is an entity. It's a thing. And it's a named entity, a thing that Google can understand. And it needs to know which particular one we're talking about. So there are 250 Jason Barnards in the world. I want to be sure it understands when we're talking about this Jason Barnard, it understands that it's this one and not the podcaster or the footballer or the hockey player or the um, scholar in San Francisco, I think. Um, and so what you need to do is, is make sure that you have a home for that entity and that home is on a site on a page in fact not as it's on a page on a site that you control so your own site if you don't have your own personal site you should have one because you're whether you like it or not you need to control your personal brand or you need some kind of control because it's going to it's going to get increasingly important it's not just google it's facebook it's apple it's uh bing it's uh, all, all of these amazon they're all doing the same thing. They're building knowledge graphs of understanding of the world because that's how they're going to be able to serve their clients or their audience. So you need a home and you need that home to contain the factual information that's important about you now, potentially your history, but your history really doesn't need to be pushed forwards because that's not what they're interested in. They're, they're not interested that, uh, that sorry, that, that you, Ryan, were in a band or that I was in a band they're interested in what we're doing now because what we're doing now is what's important to them to actually make the money. Yeah. And it's okay. also what's interesting to people who are looking for us most of the time. Um, and if people really want to find out about me being in a band, they'll search for Jason Barnard, the barking dogs, and they'll find it um, <laughs> because they know I was in that particular band. 
So I, I think that's it. First important point is we're in the present. And a lot of us as human beings live in the past. So that's number one out the window. Number two, give your entity a home and it's a page on your website, preferably not the homepage because the homepage serves lots of other purposes and you don't want a boring factual homepage. You want it on a page inside your site that says about me or about my brand mm -hmm. that Google understands is the source of information from the horse's mouth, mouth from the entity itself. From there, you then go, okay, I've got my home. Now what I need to do, and Google said, okay, right, I believe you, let's say 20%. Now what you need to do is push that confidence in its understanding, i.e. this is true. You need to push it up and you need to push it up by corroboration. And corroboration is a word that I couldn't say a year ago. Uh, and I've been saying it so much, I've now managed to say corroboration without sounding like um, uh, Jonathan Roth, who's an English uh, um, show host, who's got a r -r -r thing, I can't remember what it's called anyway. Um, you need to point out to the corroboration that proves what you're saying is true, which basically means a pointing to the reliable sources that, or the sources that Google sees as reliable for you mm -hmm. and a source that's reliable for you isn't going to be the same as it is for me. And that's what CaliCube does. It figures out what Google sees as reliable, independent, trustworthy corroboration for you as opposed to me. Yeah, that, that seems like a pretty pretty good segue because uh, when we talk about ORM and especially Paul and I and our, our background, it, it seems like there's a whole process for the individual, a whole process for an actual like a business entity. You know, there's different access to different social platforms. It could be mm -hmm. content contributions. It can be social profiles. Like there are all these things that an individual has access to and is appropriate for them versus like a business and, and the, all these other things. But there's probably still plenty of crossover and even like a philosophy that kind of goes into approaching either one. And, and it's funny, you actually mentioned the band too. Uh, the name of the, the band I was in was called Kerrigan, uh, K-A-R-R-I-G-A-N. I don't know if that's a plug for my band from 12 years ago. But <laughs> right, you know, want to listen to outdated uh, pop rock, feel free. But <laughs> when we were getting going, we were pretty popular. We were supported by things like Bandcamp and MySpace and, and uh, Total Punk or whatever blogs wow, and stuff. Cool. But then... There was this really popular uh, game called Counter-Strike back in the day, and there was a very popular player in Sweden named Kerrigan, spelled exactly the same way, and it huh. started to kind of flip in their favor as they got more and more popular and started winning tournaments. And now if you type in Kerrigan, it's nothing but this Counter-Strike player, and you never see anything about the band anymore. And it's interesting right. how it took over. The, the, well, that's actually really interesting. There are a couple of things there. Um, lo lovely story. But one of them is probabilistic something or other. Dawn Anderson talks about it a lot, and I never really understand 100% what she says. But it's basically the probability that somebody's looking for this other person is higher. Therefore, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna see them more. But probabilistic decisions that Google makes about what to show is incredibly geosensitive too. So it also depends where you are in the world, what it's going to show. Um, and another good point is the fact that they were in the news or that person was in the news much more recently and much more solidly than you were, which means it's more probable once again that somebody's actually looking for them. And I, there was an update on the knowledge graph uh, a year and a half ago that I called the Budapest update. And what happened is that the, the, the average knowledge graph API score, the, the, the score it returned, went up fivefold. And for some, it went up like a thousandfold, and some it went down a thousandfold. And the common denominator for those that rose was that they were in the news recently. 
and the common denominator for the ones that fell was that they went to Marilyn Monroe and uh, what was his name? Uh, Montgomery Clift was the example I use, uh, is that she's still famous. She's still in the news. She still talked about uh, day-to-day. Montgomery Clift isn't, but he was as famous as she was before at the time in the 50s. And her Knowledge Graph API score went through the roof and his went through the floor. And it's the same thing with Homer Simpson and Dan Castanella. People talk about Homer Simpson. They don't talk much about Dan Castanella. Exactly the same story. So that kind of idea of, 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 of active, present-day usage and um, newsworthiness is going gonna, is gonna to all – sorry, not newsworthiness. How much you're being mentioned, how much you're present is going to have a big influence yeah. on that. Do, do you think you can, um, let's say as a brand, and you wanted to artificially um, inflate that, right? So you use like a PR strategy for press releases. Like, do you think you can sort of spoof that uh, through those, those means? Or is, is this like legit actual news uh, that's like the, what it's taking into account? I would say, you, I mean, I, I think you can still, I mean, you can still trick Google. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, uh, whereas in the, um, I started this in the, in the web in 1990, you could, you could trick it for years and years and years on end. I, don't, I think those days of being able to trick it for years on end are over. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a race that's getting faster and faster and more and more difficult to, to, to keep up with. Um, but to sell my own kind of source, I would say you not spoofing it, but you can find which resources Google is looking at for your industry and your geolocation in a more general sense and yeah. target those. And CaliCube actually gives that information for free. And you can go in and you can see what is Google citing? What is Google talking about? What is Google willing to stick its neck out for in that right-hand channel, uh, right-hand rail, sorry. Um, and so you, you can say, well, I can actually target my PIR efforts to the specific platforms uh, and media sites that are important for my industry in my geo location. And then look at my brand SERP and the stuff that's already coming up for me and see which ones are being prioritized. Or I can, oh, I just had another idea. Or look at your competitor and see what their sweet spots are. Yeah. Copy them. Bingo, you're away. Thank you. That, oh, I've just found a new use for CaliCube. How lovely. <laughs> um, well, we expect to have some royalties from that. Uh, so <laughs> you, you can have uh, $5.25 next time we see you. All right. Love it. it. All right. <laughs> um, I, wa- I want to talk about another aspect of ORM that's not as transparent as just simply, you know, in a SERP, this is where a negative article or, or a result is, is positioned or positive or whatever. Um, when it comes to like similar searches and it comes to like suggestive search, there's a lot of times that brands get associated with negative keywords. So mm-hmm. it'll be a situation where you're typing in the brand and you're like, wait a second, scam, is it worth it? Or is this legit? And they're like, well, these are not things I want associated with my brand. And I've tried manipulating that in the past by abusing Mechanical Turk to have people mm-hmm. like, hey, do this search and then click this result. And then Amazon's like, nope, nope, nope. And I got a really great account that I used very much for the past six years banned for that kind of activity. But it seems that that activity is employed by other people with a degree of success. So when it comes to like ORM and staying kind of proactive, you could technically in some ways maybe manipulate a result to associate your brain with positive, you know, positivity consistently. So um, have you ever had like success or taking a look at like someone's name or similar search or trying to associate it with a positivity when people are kind of doing those kinds of searches or do you well, hope it happens naturally? 
Well, the, the, the problem the problem you're having if, if you're associated with a negative term is that it, it's search volume that's going to start to affect uh, much more than anything else what Google's going to be showing around. I mean, I talked to Nathan Chalmers from Bing, who's the whole page algorithm guy. Um, and that was phenomenally interesting because the idea, basically, you've got, I mean, Gary Elias explained to me how Google ranks all the different rich elements, you know, basically you have the blue links that, that, that have their ranking and then you have all these verticals like videos and images and Twitter mm -hmm. and, and they all put in a bid, what he calls a bid. It's not a monetary bid. It's a value to the user bid to try and get into the SERP and they get into the SERP if they can provide a better value than the blue link, uh, which is how that, that, that SERP develops into a rich SERP. And I thought, wow, brilliant, wonderful. I've nailed it. I've understood it all. And, he, and then I talked to Nathan Chambers from Bing, who's the whole page algorithm guy. And he said, yeah, but I sit on top of all of that. And I veto anything I feel like, basically. I mean, obviously, it's an algorithm. It's not him personally yeah. doing it. But, um, and so that the, the, the fact that you get a knowledge panel, the fact that you're, you know, a video should be there but isn't there is because that algorithm has decided that the other algorithm system of Darwinism, which is what I called it, hasn't got it right. And interesting enough, Bing, the algorithm for the whole page is called Darwin. Wow. which is wonderful. I, I, that made me giggle a lot because I've been calling it Darwinism in search and it's actually anti-Darwinism because it vetoes, <laughs> which is yeah. wonderful. Um, and so, sorry, excuse me. So, and, and everything on that page potentially is affected by that whole page algorithm, which steps in and overrides stuff. And an example would be that I talked to Ali Alv from Bing. I mean, I, I did a series of interviews with Bing and because it's the same uh, data, the same aim and the same audience, mm -hmm. you can assume that they're not, and the same technology, you can assume they're not reinventing the wheel the two function reasonably in a similar manner. I'm talking to John Muir and Gary Elias and listening to Martin Split, it would seem that they both work the same, more or less, the same way. And Ali Alvi does the Q&A, which is a feature snippets for Bing, and he was saying uh, that, that they... Sorry, it's the same algorithm that runs the descriptions under the blue links, the featured snippet. That's why it's called a featured snippet, because it's the snippet under the blue link that's being featured. He gave me a, a sly wink and a smile when he said that, because I hadn't realized he was going, that's really obvious. You should have thought of that. Uh, and in the knowledge panel, it fills that in. And then, so sorry, what, what it comes down to is I actually found a really weird thing going on in Bing. And I asked Ali Alvi about it. He said, well, that, that's going to be Nathan overriding what I sent him. Obviously, it's not the people once again. <laughs> yeah. So uh, potentially what you could do, and this is potentially, is convince that whole page algorithm that that negative set of those negative associations are not relevant. And I would suspect, and this is completely throwing it out there, that the whole page algorithm is has a lot of entity-based stuff going on. It needs to understand the entity. And I would argue that because it puts those people also asked, Mm -hmm. when it's understood the entity. It cannot find, it can't know what questions people ask around an entity without understanding the entity in the first place. And if you look so, at the questions, it's about the entity or the topic of the entity. Yeah. Sorry, excuse me, I, I do go on, don't I? This is, no, this is a really interesting topic. Um, so basically, I, I guess if I can interpret this correctly, right, the, the overall page algorithm um, is going to kind of set what's going to happen uh, if the rich, whatever rich element isn't meeting up 
to the standards. Exactly. It's just yes. overriding all of it, right? So if, if you ever, so I guess that really means that like any any search has the potential for uh, like rich elements w- within it. Oh God, um, yeah, hundred percent, absolutely. And, yeah. And it is, it is that thing is basically he has the power of veto and he has the power of bumping something up that wasn't quite up to scratch. Um, and, and he explicitly said an awful lot of this is based on click-through data. Okay. So when Google are saying, and that basically it's really sneaky, uh, that Google say, no, we don't use click data in our algorithm. And they're saying, because people are saying the blue link algorithm, and they're saying, no, we don't use it, and they don't. But it doesn't mean to say they don't use it in the whole page algorithm because people aren't explicitly asking them about the whole page algorithm, which is where it would come into play. It's user experience on that SERP. Yeah. It's making the SERP as relevant and helpful as possible, and they do that using lots of different things, including click, click-through data, click through, which Nathan yeah. Chan was very clearly and explicitly said, yes, we do, and that's a phenomenally important so, part of the algorithm. So you could, you could just basically find... Um, lots of situations where there isn't any rich data in, in a SERP and then influence it, right? Like, yep. uh, Trig- like I, I call one. it triggering. Yeah, triggering, yeah. Triggering, triggering a rich element. And, and people are saying, oh, yeah, look, look where there's a video box or a feature snippet and then try and do better than competition. That, that's a lot of effort. Why don't you find a SERP that should have a video that doesn't or a feature snippet that doesn't? Make, make, trigger it yourself. Because that's what they want. They want to show this information. They just don't have a candidate that's sufficiently yeah. good quality. So, uh, you know, I know uh, from my own experience, right, we, we've had blog posts and we've created videos to go along with them. Um, and that's actually, you know, forced uh, the, like the video snippet to show up in like the SERPs afterwards. Uh, but it wasn't just mine, right? It, it actually brought in like uh, other competitors that were similar for that video because they don't like to just show one video result uh, in the SERPs. There's usually like a pack of like three of them. Um, and so we, we created it, but we actually brought in competitors with us. Well, I think what's really important to remember here, right here. is is that um, the, 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 the rich elements come into play. And, and um, Frederick Dubu, I mean, I keep dropping names from Bing, but they, they actually did, they, they gave me a, a series of five interviews and it was stunning because they've got nothing to lose by sharing all their secrets. So Google won't, but Bing will. So you just ask Bing and bingo, you're away. Um, <laughs> and he was saying the fundamental foundation is the Blue Link algorithm because that's where they make their money. That's not going away. Um, then what you have on, on top of that is all these other rich elements that come in. And he said the average number of blue links or the, sorry, the no- average number of elements on a page is always going to be about 10. And so mm-hmm. basically these rich elements come in and they replace, they kill a blue link, which is how ORM, if we come back to that, I advise my clients, you want to get rid of that bad result. Yeah, try, don't drown it. Don't create new content. Find content below it that you can actually do SEO for somebody else and promote it and leapfrog it above every, above the, the bad result. But also look to trigger these rich elements because these rich elements kill blue links. And that gives you... A, more control, but also potentially pushes that bad result off the bottom of the page. Um, so that, that kind of 10-element rule is actually fairly stable, and I've got, got that in my data. And Nathan Chalmers made a really good point, is on an ambiguous query, you're going to get 12 to 14, maybe 15. On an unambiguous query, you're going to get 5, 6. And there's a, and that's really important. So, for example, Yellow Door. If my company's called Yellow Door, who who calls their company Yellow Door? That's a silly idea. 
it's so ambiguous. It's a really long SERP and it's very confusing because there is no uh, way for Google or Bing to know what you're looking for. So they give you the choice. The whole page algorithm will then say, this is ambiguous. Let's give them a lot of choice. So yeah. it's going gonna, it's gonna to create a longer SERP and promote more elements that would not otherwise have got their place. So the ambiguity plays a phenomenal role in how the whole page algorithm decides on the length of the SERP. So not only do you need to look at the rich elements, what you can trigger, but also how long the SERP is. And the last point that I'll make, and then I'll give you the, 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 the microphone back, is that because with ambiguous queries in particular, it's going to say we need informational, um, navigational, and commercial queries because we need to be sure that the person has on that page at some place the choice they wanted. And people make the mistake of thinking, I'm competing for one of 10 places, let's say, they're not. With that kind of query, you're competing for one of the three informational places. So you're not competing for one of 10, you're competing for one of three. Yeah, I mean, that's that's my whole life, right? Uh, is, oh, uh, that location-based stuff. Uh, <laughs> I, I work for a company right now that has like 700 locations. So it's, uh, you know, Maps uh, drives about like 80% of the revenue for it. So right. Yeah, so we're, uh, I remember when that was, uh, it was like 10 uh, back in the day, and then it went down to seven, mm -hmm. all right, and then it went to three, and then everyone lost their minds, and it was, it was just really interesting back then. Um, but yeah, but I think uh, you've really given us a lot of great information in, in this podcast, and I know there's some stuff that I'm going to do differently with like my own strategies, because um, it's just, I always, you know, I always say like we want to get everything that we can possibly get um, in the SERP, right? So, yeah. you know, the Q&A markup, you, you want to get like everything that you can, you want to dominate it. Um, but I, I've never really thought about like um, searching specifically for for results that don't have any of the, these and like making it happen for them, right? So, yeah. And, and what is, from my perspective, really interesting, and I think people don't really grasp, when I say brand SERP, exact match brand names, people, SEOs tend to say, that's easy, I'm number one, job finished. They also say, it's not very interesting. I can do that in a, in, a, in a month, which is what I thought when I started. And seven years later, I'm still learning something new every day. And all, all of what I'm, well, sorry, a lot of what I'm saying comes from just studying brand SERPs. Because one of the things that strikes me is in order to get the video boxes on my brand SERP or the Twitter boxes, I had to develop a proper content strategy for them. And my video strategy is now very good. And my videos are popping up all over the place. <laughs> And to get the Twitter boxes, I had to have a proper Twitter strategy. I have the Twitter boxes, and now I have lots more followers. I've got lots of interactions, and Twitter is now a channel, in inverted commas, for me. Yeah. Uh, and so, in fact, what happens when you start optimizing your brand SERP in proactive ORM, you, you can say, I'm protecting my brand. I'm making sure that the message that's pushed out to my audience, and remember, your audience is actually Google's users. They're not your users until they visited your site. So it's Google's users, your audience, the subset of Google's users who are your audience, who are looking at this brand SERP. Um, I want to impress them with, with great content. I've created this content. For that content to rank on my brand SERP, I have to prove to Google that it's valuable and uh, relevant for them. And to do that, I have to demonstrate or I have to make sure that it is truly uh, valuable and relevant, and Google can see that it is. And at that point, I've, I've basically just developed a great content strategy. No, but like up to this point, I mean, I have to say this has definitely been very insightful. This is something that I've always 
kind of looked at like ORM. How do we like? No, I don't want to use the word manipulate. Manipulate always has negative connotation. Yeah, I agree. But, but like, hey, how about this? Influence. Influence yeah. is not, not nearly as bad. And, you know, I always look at it from a negative um, standpoint because I'm a huge pessimist. Now, I just, that's typically what I'm, you know, the situation we find ourselves in because, as we said before, this is very reactive. You're very mm. proactive, which is only a million times better. This, the name of the podcast should, should be all the times that people didn't listen to Jason and should have been proactive is basically what the, end of the podcast should be. But it's interesting because I've always thought of like the search and, and the autofill, autocomplete, similar searches as the, the way that people are like continuously searching. But then, you know, you think about it and you're like, well, all these things are on the first page of SERP too. They're like pulling this in from the information that's associated with the brand on the first page. So it's just like, oh, shoot. What opportunities do I have to really influence a positive kind of search experience by um, utilizing some of these um, results or the ones that I can create, the ones that I have access to and can you know, edit or add to, to include some other keywords to associate yeah. with the brand or the individual? Ooh, you know, that's actually inspired a couple of points in my brain, one of which is kind of you're asking about these uh, negative associations. I mean, the more we get into entity-based search, the more Google is associating us with specific topics. So making strengthening that association, basically by association, you can say, I can, as an entity, once I'm understood as an entity, I can start to influence, as you said earlier on, the associations that Google is making. So... Uh, a good example, and it was really interesting, last weekend I was building the algorithm for CaddyCube and it was all terribly boring. Sunday afternoon, uh, struggling my brain around lots of code. And I was looking at the list. Basically, CaddyCube generates this list of prioritized uh, pages related to my name, what, what Google is pulling out most often around my name. And it struck me, I've got a podcast with 159 episodes and three episodes just kept cropping up. One where I talked to Anton Schulke from SEMrush about webinars. One where I talked to Cindy Crum about uh, her SERP measurement system. And one where I talked to uh, James Mulvaney about podcasts. And it suddenly struck me, why is it picking those three episodes and not any of the other ones? And it's because I've done boatloads of webinars. I talk about SERPs all the time. And because I've got a podcast and I go on and on and on and on about it, and I've been doing this experiment with WordLift, which is an entity-based content model. It's basically saying we have an entity, which is a podcast. Within that, we have episodes, which are entities. They each have a guest, which is an entity, and a topic, which is an entity. And we link all that together, and we present it to Google as a knowledge graph, a mini knowledge graph, which is absolute genius. And it's working really well. It's a mad experiment, experiment sorry. Uh, thanks to Andrea Volpini at WordLift. Um, but what struck me was that Google's associating me with these terms. So those are the ones that keep popping up. And what you're talking about, obviously negative, positive is, is, is a bit more ambiguous and difficult. But that idea is saying it's associating me with the topics I talk absolutely loads about. So by extension, I would suspect that those links at the bottom, those associated terms can be affected by the quantity of content, quality content that you create around a specific area. 
and that you could influence it by focusing on these pages that Google sees as important to your entity. And once again, it, it goes beyond industry and geo. It goes to you personally, you, this entity, what's important, and placing on those sources the things that you want Google to associate with you more than the ones that it's currently showing. And that would be a really interesting experiment to do. That's... Yeah, that's a good point. The more that we talk about, the more that my brain is going to the next place, but we only have so much time, of course. But sure. it makes me think that you're, now you're talking about the quantity. It so it goes beyond the first page. It could be just like multiple instances on multiple pages that are kind of getting aggregated. And then it's almost being like quantified and, you know, prioritized. Yeah. I mean, another thing. Um, I'm not, I, I, I've built a tool. I'm working for Yoast as, um, to work on their brand SERP and their knowledge panels because they see that it's important, which is lovely. Um, and I've started to build out the tool based on a, a set, a testing set of about 15 entities, including Yoast and Wordlift and SE Ranking, who I work with as well on this, um, and myself and the entities around me and so on and so forth. And what I've seen is there's a phenomenal difference in the amount, the number of pages that crop up in the system and the strength the relative strength of some compared to others and the relative weightings. And what I'm starting to see is that types of pages, about pages, profile pages, articles about, articles by, um, spam, rubbish, negative, unhelpful content, the volumes for each entity are very different. And there's going to be a pattern. I just need to find what that pattern is. So you're looking at what is relevant and where are the holes? Are you, are you missing profile pages? Are you missing about me pages? Are you missing articles about you? Are you obviously not missing spam? Are you missing mentions? All of these need to be filled up because Google's trying to fill up its SERPs about an entity with a representative set of URLs, of, of, of content. And it's trying to do a balanced representation. And if you think about it from that point of view, the influencing of it becomes, I think, uh, more approachable. I, I think uh, you've covered like a, a lot of great stuff. And I think it's a lot to think about and a lot to pull out from this. Um, it, it sounds like you're really kind of on the cutting edge of, of, of like doing a lot of data analysis on the service, which is great um, to hear from people that do that all the time. Well, I, there are a few things that struck me. I mean, the last couple of weeks have been actually, I, I keep having these exciting periods. I got deleted, all, all my articles in Wikipedia got deleted in the space of two weeks. Um, which deeply hurt my ego, but uh, <laughs> taught me an awful lot because it, it was it was an experience in rebuilding, which was really interesting. And I learned absolutely boatloads about how to build a knowledge panel without Wikipedia or Wikidata, for that matter. Um, and the last couple of weeks has been building out this machine that's trying to understand what Google prioritizes for each individual individual entity, whereas before I only had it by industry and by uh, geo. Uh, and it, it's bringing up an awful lot of stuff that I really hadn't thought about. And, and remember, I've been thinking about this for seven years and thinking about pretty much only this. And it was something that most people, it was something I thought initially would take me two months and I would get bored and go and do something else. And everybody I talked to says, yeah, this is really easy. That's you know, a month's work and we're away. Seven years later, I'm still learning loads. And I think the depth of this is 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 astonishing and i i can't get over it but um the 
the cutting edge kind of idea is what's interesting is it's so simple, so obvious, and we should have been doing this for years. So it's not cutting edge. It's niche because nobody else is doing it except me or very few people. As far as I know, nobody else is doing it. And yet it's universal. So it's a niche that's universal, which is ironic as well. Um, and thirdly, I was when I was talking to Cindy Crum about, and she was saying, "Oh, well, she's got a developer," and you know, I keep talking to people who've got developers, and and it isn't easy going through that stage for two reasons. One of which is the developer isn't always on the same wavelength. Secondly, you don't actually know what you're looking for until you find it. And I'm my own developer. I've got this MySQL database with 10 million lines of 10 million brand SERPs in it. And I can search through it and look through it and keep sorting it in different ways until the cows come home. And that's where I make all the great discoveries. Because I'm going through it and thinking, oh, what does that mean? Where does that go? And it's all these rabbit holes. But because I'm developing, I'm, I'm a Sunday afternoon developer, basically. I'm rubbish. But it works. It sticks together. It doesn't fall apart. Um, but the great advantage is that I can do it all very fast. And I can learn phenomenal amounts because every time I see something new, I can realize that my initial thought, which if I had a developer, I would have pushed them down that because I was like, that's where we're going. And that's the decision of the company or the boss or whatever you want to say, is saying, actually, I can, it's very agile. It's agile development of a tool that's, 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 that's moving in ways that I hadn't expected because I'm coding it myself and be, from this seven years of, 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 of research. Um, and, you know, I, I'm talking to you guys and I'm going on a little bit about it, but my brain hurts two weeks of, of, of this and my, my brain is going, wow, 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 pretty much every minute of the day. Well, well, my, I mean, just in this conversation, which has been going for only about 40 minutes, my brain has jumped like two or three times. So I can't <laughs> even imagine what kind of headaches you get. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sleeping very well, basically. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thanks so much for being on the, the show, Jason. Um, where can people get a hold of you at? Well, I mean, best way is search my name, Jason Barnard, and you'll find all the information you want on my brand set. Definitely. Do they, do they have a, to associate? What a great plug. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, uh, but yeah, do they have to associate? Uh, do they have to type in Motorhead? Do they have to type in Double Base? Or can they type in ORM, SEO, you know, all those kinds of things? Or is it just yeah. straight up your name? It's straight up my name. Uh, there are 250 Jason Barnards in the world, and none of them get a look in. Poor, poor chaps. Um, <laughs> So Jason Barnard, it's actually just me, which is kind of part of the thing is the probability that somebody's searching for Jason Barnard, the podcaster in the UK, Jason Barnard, the footballer who's quite famous in South Africa, is actually much higher than the, the fact that they're searching for me in those countries. And yet I'm still the only person on the brand SERP. Why? Because Google is so phenomenally confident that it's understood. So it's going, oh, easy option, Jason Barnard understood this one. There you go, guys. Every, everybody's happy. Uh, so... Search my name, you should only see me, not should in inverted commas, not, not in the sense that that's all I want you to see. Uh, and that's kind of interesting from the point of view as the brand SERP is not only what's most relevant for the user, but what also Google is most confident in. Have you uh, ever thought about um, like tweeting at Jason Bernard, the footballer, and like talking shit to him because like your, your name ranks and his doesn't? <laughs> I, I actually, I, the, the podcast host, he does a music podcast in the UK, Jason Barnard, uh, The Strange Brew. He's actually a really, really nice guy. Uh, and he, I've tweeted him and we've had a tweet conversation uh, and he's really cool about it. He's really, really nice about it. Well, that's good. That's that's interesting. One last note for me, and I I swear I won't chime in for anything anymore. But 
it's you know people pay for domains and the positioning that domains get. I can imagine that there'd be a landscape where people pay for the work that you've done positioning like a, a name, if that would even make sense. That's true. Oh, oh Lord! Oh no! You you started a whole new. I didn't mean to. I swear. (laughs) Nope. Just erase that from your memory. I I didn't start buying all the name domains, and that's what's going to happen. I can see it. Brilliant. Anyway, connect with me on Twitter, Jason M. Barnard. I love Twitter. I think Twitter's a lot of fun. LinkedIn, I like because. You know, there's a lot of good stuff going on on LinkedIn. It's more informative. Twitter's more kind of informal and fun. So it depends on what your attitude is. Uh, come along to calicube.pro and have a look at the platform. Um, search my name if you feel like it. Um, and um, that's it. I'm, I'm really, really happy to, to talk to people and discuss brand SERPs. If you want to talk about traditional SEO, I'll probably go and talk to somebody else. All right. Well, thank you, Jace Bernard, everyone. Thank you so much for, for being on. <laughs> thanks a lot, guys. That was brilliant. All right. But anyways, uh, thanks so so much uh, again for, for listening. And uh, be sure to like, share, subscribe uh, anywhere that you listen to this podcast at. Uh, really appreciate it. And thanks again. I'm Paul Warren. And I'm Ryan Klein. And this has been another episode of SEO is Dead and Other Lives. Happy New Year. Bye. Hey.